Welcome back to the Neuroscience Meets Social and Emotional Learning Podcast for episode number 154. With someone who travels globally, presenting about something we all need to learn how to experience in today's world. He's the author of six books and the co-creator of the Portal Film Book Experience, where he teaches about the power and the stillness and the science behind the stillness. Tom Cronin, who's also known as the King of Calm. I'm Andrea Samadhi, author and educator from Toronto, Canada, now in Arizona, and like many of our listeners, have been fascinated with learning and understanding the science behind high performance strategies in our schools, in our sports and workplace environments, with ideas that we can all use, understand and implement immediately. Our guest this week, Tom Cronin, spent 26 years in finance as one of Sydney, Australia's leading bond and swap brokers. He discovered meditation in the early stages of his career when anxiety and chaos that he was experiencing due to stress and poor lifestyle choices led him to a breakdown. He came across meditation and it completely transformed his life, both personally and professionally. Today, Tom is passionate about reducing stress and chaos in people's lives, and his mission is huge. It's to inspire 7 billion people to meditate daily through his stillness project. Today, Tom is passionate about reducing stress and chaos in people's lives, and his mission is to inspire 7 billion people to meditate daily through his stillness project that aims to transform and teach people the power of stillness and calm through the power of deep meditation and coaching. Tom has appeared on national TV and featured in Vogue, Daily Telegraph, Sydney Morning Herald, Business Review, and so many other media outlets. When I was first introduced to Tom Cronin and looked up his work with The Stillness Project, I knew he was someone I needed to speak with and it was immediate. I recognized how important and powerful his mission is especially in today's times. We've featured some speakers on the podcast who've explained meditation and how to begin with episode number 25, right in the beginning with Mick Neustad on how meditation and mindfulness changes your life. And episode number 28 with Dr. Daniel Siegel, who took us a bit deeper with his episode on Mindsight, the basis for social and emotional intelligence. I'm excited to dive even deeper into the power of meditation, exploring what we all expect with our practice and where and how to begin at a time when we could all use stillness, calm and peace in our lives. When life is built on the stillness of being, Tom says, it becomes an effortless flow. Let's meet Tom Cronin. Welcome, Tom Cronin. Thank you for meeting with me today all the way from Australia. It's incredible to speak directly with the king of calm. Just what I need today. That's great to be. Thanks for inviting me along today. Yeah, absolutely. This is fun. So it's the next day for you in Australia. So the time change, what what did you say just now? That was a neat. We're in the future. We're kind of like ahead of you guys, at least uh, about a half a day in front. 
I like that being in the future. That's fun. That's kind of why I wake up so early because I don't like East Coast to be ahead of me. I'm kind of competitive. <laughs> <laughs> so, Tom, before we get to the questions to dive deeper into the projects you've been working on with meditation, the Stillness Project, and your movie and book, The Portal, can you share what even brought you to look at meditation in the first place, especially these days when there's such challenging times for people all over the world and stress is at an all-time high, anxiety and depression? What happened to you that made you decide there has to be a better way leading you to the work you're doing today? Great question. And the thing with discomfort, whether it's anxiety or depression or you know anything that is a disease or discomfort or something that's not like calm and peaceful and joyful and fluid is a is a mechanism to guide us to change and i was a broker in finance and i had been getting these messages from nature from my body to change what i was doing change the way i was living my life and i was getting a lot of anxiety a lot of panic attacks a lot of insomnia but I just didn't listen to those messages and I just kept doing the same thing over and over again as a broker on a trading room floor, doing lots of drinking, partying, drugs, just really lost in that egocentric, decadent lifestyle. And so my body was getting these really strong signals to, to change things. And the way it does that is by giving me these, these symptoms. But it wasn't until I had a very uh, extreme I guess, response to the way I was living life. And that was in 1996, I had a, a nervous breakdown where my whole system collapsed and I was fairly incapacitated. I was really questioning whether I wanted to go on with life. And it was in that time that meditation was presented to me by some divine intervention in the universe where I was sitting at home watching TV and it was a story about a property developer. And there was a tiny slither of that story where he was sitting in a chair meditating in a suit. Now, I'd never come across meditation my entire life. You know, I grew up in the country. I worked on a trading room floor. So there was no meditation around me. But this suddenly was like a, a, a light bulb moment, epiphany, when it just lit up in my mind that this was something that I needed to look into. And that's really what started my journey into exploring meditation and mindfulness. Wow, what I really loved about hearing your story for the first time was we've all known what it's like when you're making wrong choices, you know, it just doesn't feel right. Something inside us is saying this feels good now, but the next day you don't feel great when you're getting up and exercising. So we've all been there, me, and, and then when you get a glimpse of what it's like when you make a healthy decision, it's just listening to our body and going, that feels bad, this feels good, and then leaning in towards what feels good. And then you kept going with it. What what kept you going towards that, I, this feels right? Yeah, it's just the, you know, the it's, it's just cause and effect, isn't it? Each decision has a corresponding reaction to it. And, you know, I just found my life was just getting better and better. Like, firstly, the thing I noticed the most was in the first week, that sleep suddenly became a natural thing for me. It was so unnatural for me. You know, I was just, my mind would be spinning a million miles an hour after being on a trading room floor and in marketing clients at bars and restaurants and nightclubs. I just couldn't sleep. Uh, and then to be able to sleep was just a godsend. It was incredible. And to be able to turn my mind off because of the training that I was doing with my meditation. And then, um, so once I started sleeping better and I was getting a lot more rest in the meditation, 
I just found that I was getting lighter and healthier and I started being drawn to making decisions that were more congruent with how I was feeling. So because I started to feel better, then that started to influence my decisions. And I started making choices that were actually going to lead me to make me feel better. And it just snowballs upwards or spirals upwards in a better way. That is interesting. I was just listening to something else on autoimmune disease before we came on. And Dr. David Perlmuter, he's been in all these documentaries on Alzheimer's. And, and he just said, when we make poor uh, food choices, it actually impacts our decision making and snowball. So we're going to keep making those bad food choices. So I never really thought about it with regards to decision making like you had mentioned. This is a new thing when you're doing the right thing you make the right decisions yeah and the other thing that goes with this and why i literally won't work with people unless i've got them meditating because it's so hard to break the patterns but there's so many things that play out when we start meditating our biochemistry changes our physiology changes our, our the capacity in our brain functionality changes but one of the key things that i noticed time and time again with students is as we quieten the mind through a daily meditation practice there's another communication that arises within us and that's within our body. And that's the, we call it intuition or our subtle feeling. And it's a, a mechanism for guiding us in our decision-making processes. And it's this very subtle feeling within us. That's it's, I liken it going back to babies because babies haven't developed their cerebral functionality. They're not very intelligent at that particular point when they're not to two. And so they have to make decisions based upon something else because they can't be analytical. Mm, do I really want that pumpkin? Or maybe I'll have the zucchini. And how are you going, mum? Are you feeling good? Did you sleep well last night? You know, they're not that aware about the, the world that they're in, right? Mm -hmm. And so they, they, they make this decision-making process, which is really simple and really primal. It's either uh-uh or it's uh-huh. And so it's that simple, uh-huh or uh-uh. And that's what we have within us. And it's like, do I want to go out on a bender tonight with my mates and drink 15 beers and then finish off with scotches and bourbons? Or do I want to go to bed early and wake up for some yoga and some meditation? It's uh-uh or uh-huh. And so our inner voice is going to guide us to make decisions that are going to actually elevate our life in the long term. Now, here's a question. Why don't we sometimes listen to that voice? Like we, we all had that flash of uh-uh, but you still do it anyway. What's up with that? It's, that's such a beautiful question because it really, this, this question is, is really the question we should be asking all of humanity right now because we're on a trajectory that's not sustainable. And the big question is why do we keep saying uh-huh when it's definitely a uh-uh? And so we have karma and we have kriya. And karma is the corresponding reaction that happens after the decision. So if I go out for that bender with my mates and drink 14 beers and finish with bourbon and scotch, the, that's, that, the karma will happen after that action. Okay. It's the, there'll be fatigue. There'll be obviously my body in a bad way and I'll feel really sick the next day. So there's the action, then there's a reaction. Kriya is what happens before the action. So we've got the action here. And then after the action is karma and before the action is kriya. Kriya is that mechanism within us that's guiding us to do the aha uh -huh or aha. Uh -huh. But we can't really hear kriya that much for most of us because there's a very noisy mind that says things like, well, what if you get judged? What if they say you're a dickhead for not joining us? What if, uh, you know, you feel like you're missing out because you're, you're making decisions from an ego? And that ego is so confused. It's so 
uncertain about who it is. If someone says it's amazing, then it thinks it's amazing. If someone says it's a dickhead, then it thinks it's a dickhead. And so it's a very confused entity that exists and occupies the vessel. And we think that's who we are. And the, the thing with the ego is it's so deeply coded and conditioned with this sort of program we call vasanas, these tendencies of the mind, that it makes decisions based upon so many external factors and so many internal sort of codes and nuances that are programmed into that decision-making process. Predominantly, one of the key tenets of the ego is the yearning for pleasure. Because the ego is very unsatisfied. It can never actually be fully satisfied. It never lives in a content state. It can never get there. Even though we're conditioned to think that if we get the Netflix subscription or scroll through Instagram or buy um, you know, uh, some new clothes that we're going to get there. But of course, we never get there with the ego. It never is satiated. And so we're operating from this unsatiable entity called an ego that is constantly craving some form of pleasure. And then that leads it to making these decisions that lead to karma. And so as we reduce the influence of the ego through the meditation process, what happens is the inner voice, the inner self, the inner essence of our being, which is only really being moved towards having the highest experience and most joyful experience possible as, a, as, a, as in its existing form. And that's always there, but it's drowned out by this very noisy egoic mind. Mm -hmm. That's why it's so difficult for people to begin this practice and quiet their mind even i remember when i first began to sit and be still was not easy at all but the benefits are so overwhelming that you know just to figure out how to get from point a which is beginning to um you know now doing it every day which you only work with people who do it every day so you've you're picking the cream of the crop here to work with so I, I just need to clarify, it's, it's, it's not that I only work with people who do it every day. It's, it's I suggest that we meditate first and what they do with that after that, not all my students meditate every day. <laughs> and even I don't meditate every day sometimes, but uh, it's about being compassionate and kind, but also acknowledging that if we can brush our teeth every day, if we can go to the toilet every day, if we have a shower every day, if we eat food every day, then this is almost just as important as those activities that we incorporate this into our life. So on that thread, I watched a couple of your interviews that I'm going to link in the show notes so listeners can go back and, and listen to. Uh, it was your interview with Brian Scott, where you really took a deep dive into how to begin and a lot of questions that um, people can listen to through that podcast. But what I liked was you listed the top four meditation styles for people who might want to begin and they're not sure of an entry point. And what I wanted to do, can we just go through these top four meditation styles and then have me tell you what I think they are and you tell me if I'm right and just kind of go a little bit deeper into them? Yeah, that sounds like a great way to do it. I love that. Okay, perfect. So the first one you mentioned was concentration as a meditation style. And back in the late 90s, I worked with Bob Proctor in the seminar industry and I was looking for ways to improve concentration and focus. And he kept saying, Andrea, go look at a candle. And okay, go look at a candle didn't do much for me, but I found this activity where I was told to look at the flame of a candle and let the candle flame and me be one. And so he said, you got to practice that. 
and practice it for hours. And so back before I had children and responsibilities, I had an hour to sit and look at a flame and see if I could make me and the flame be one. But that's what I did to improve my focus and concentration. And I took it further. The activity actually said, if I say in my head colors, like I could change the flame by saying yellow, 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 the flame turned yellow, green, 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 the flame turned green. Would you say this is a meditation on improving focus and concentration or what would you list concentration as a way to improve it? It's definitely one style of it where we're taking our mind to a single point and we're, we're focusing, we're trying, we're concentrating and we're using effort and force and discipline. So these are words that we use to emphasize something doing something that it doesn't want to do, but using some control to get it to do it. And so um, that's the, the mind doesn't really enjoy focusing on one thing, much rather scrolling through Instagram feeds and devouring lots of different things. But if we can use a concentration technique, and the one I recommend to students is to actually close the eyes, uh, because the more we withdraw from our senses, the more capabilities we have to quieten the mind. Um, I do like that meditation. However, I'm not sure what it does to the the, the retina of the eye looking at a, a flame for that long. But what I recommend for my students, if, if I'm in a corporate setting or something where I'm recommending the, the concentration meditation is to close the eyes and focus on the breath, moving through the nostrils. And going even more refined than that is to focus on the cooling skin around the rim of the nostril as the air moves in and out of the nostrils and what you'll find is that the the focus point is so refined and so subtle that you have to really really concentrate to identify something so subtle that it's it's such a disciplined practice that you're really training the mind to be still got it got it yeah it was hard work i remember there's no way i could do that now but i remember when i had the time it was effort and hard work but it definitely improved focus and the next type was contemplation and i think you had mentioned it was like a guided meditation is that correct where somebody's walking yeah. you through uh, the first one i ever came across was john asraf and he would have guided meditations for improving your business mindset or wealth mindset and those were the first ones i started to use but what would you say would be other contemplation meditations yeah, you know, there's an app out there, a meditation app, and they've got, they, they're bragging, not to be negative about this, that I guess they're emphasizing that they have 100,000 meditations in their app. I mean, it's just like, oh my goodness, how many yeah. meditations do we need to be peaceful? That's going to be, that's going to be <laughs> overwhelming in itself. But contemplation meditations is where we are still having neurological activity. The mind is busy. And so we're going through our chakras or we're having gratitude or we're visualizing something or we're listening to someone on an app that's guiding us through some beautiful existence. And they're, they're beautiful. I still use contemplation meditations. There's, there's a lot of merit in them. We have to acknowledge, though, that a contemplation meditation is emphasizing the existence of the eye because it's the eye that's listening to the contemplation meditation or doing the contemplation meditation we haven't actually gone beyond the eye. And so there's a proliferation or an accentuation of the eye with a lot of those meditations. I will be rich. I will be successful. I will clear my chakras. I this, I that. And so I'm all for them to some degree, but if they're not integrated with a meditation that enables the transcendence of the eye, 
then it's just going to leave us in that egoic structure, which is always going to leave us to uncertainty, discomfort, pain and suffering. So do you mean integrating I with others? So start thinking about us and thinking about wishing other people well? Is that what you mean? Taking the focus? No, going beyond the I as in that there is no you. You're just in consciousness itself without your personality, your name, even your physical form. So we'll get to that in the fourth meditation that we'll discuss. Got it. So let's go to the third one, which was chanting. And I first heard this on an interview with Dr. Andrew Newberg. He's a professor and director of research from the Marcus Institute of Integrative Health. And I interviewed him episode 88. And he talked about the power of the Kirtan Kriya meditation. And I haven't done it, but he swears by uh, the fact that he was able to take these big burly guys to do these chanting meditations and totally change their life. And so another one that I heard was um, in the late 90s in a seminar, someone who I would consider to be highly influential came up to me with a card and it had a Buddhist chant on it. And he said, you say this every day, watch your life transform. And, And I've kept this card next to me for over 20 years. I used to say it every day, but what is the power of chanting? And, and do you know these two meditations? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I've spent uh, a fair bit of time in Kirtan. Um, if you just, wherever you are in your city uh, in the world, just about, if you just Google Hare Krishna Center, um, the Hare Krishnas generally hold, uh, you know, very cheap evenings once a week for a one hour Kirtan, which is chanting as a group. And there'll be people in suits and cool dudes and, you know, grandma and grandpa there, and all walks of life will come to these sessions. They're open to the public. Don't be put off that it's um, the Hare Krishna. They're beautiful people with great intentions. And so usually you'll have a chanting session for 45 minutes and quite often they'll provide a, a, a meal. And um, it's a very powerful evening where you've got a large group of people chanting these particular Sanskrit sounds. And um, even if it's not in a kirtan setting with large groups of people with music and chanting, but if it's on your own and you have a, a, a mantra like a Buddhist monk, a Buddhist mantra. It could be Om Namah Shivaya, or it could be Om Mani Padmi Hum. These chants can be said out loud, often with mala beads. That's 108 mala beads, and you'll go through the 108 mala beads with that chant. So Om Mani Padmi Hum, Om Mani Padmi Hum, Om Mani Padmi Hum, Om Mani Padmi Hum, and the repetition and the frequency of that chant has quite a powerful effect on our body. Now, some of the audience might be going, oh, that's baloney. But we've got to remember that everything that we're reading, listening to or watching is or engaging in in some way, shape or form is having a resonance and an influence on us. This is called the event horizon, where the sphere of influence of everything is, is, is morphing and impacting us. So if you're in a rainforest, the frequency of that rainforest will have a definitive effect on your frequency. It's a very high frequency in a rainforest. Whereas if you're in uh, watching a horror movie on Netflix, then the the vibration of that noise and the imagery, so noise and imagery that you're watching on a plastic glass screen with a bit of copper wires in it is able to put your state into a state of fear. Mm -hmm. And so music we're listening to, books that we're reading, chants that we're chanting all have a resonance that's influencing our, our state. And so when we do these chants, it has a particular resonance that raises our frequency. 
I can feel it with the Buddhist one. I've, I've got it. It was Nam Yoho Rienge Kyo, and the guy uh, made me say it a bunch of different times. Have you heard that one? I have heard that one, yeah, but I haven't used it before. Okay. Definitely, I noticed a difference when I was using it. Yeah, I've got to go back to, to going into that. But so the last one was the transcendental type of meditation. And this is the one that I, I don't think I've spent as much time that that you have in in this and and i think dawson church's bliss brain meditations go into this where he makes you feel joy and bliss i interviewed him on episode 98 and um they just help you go into this state where you are searching for happiness and then dr dan siegel on his wheel of awareness i think he touches on it but can you explain this because i think this is my missing link mm -hmm. Yeah, so transcending in meditation is um, a very powerful experience. And it's also an essential experience to have the full experience of reality. Until we transcend and experience that non-changing state of conscious awareness that is not identified through or, or observed through the veneer of the persona, the ego, the identity, then we're, we're falling short of what reality is. And the absolute truth is a non-subjective conscious awareness that is not influenced in any way, shape or form by our past coding, conditioning, genetics, ancestral or future worries or concerns. It's just the ability to experience a deep state of presence and beingness without the identity and the individualized self. And so in Sanskrit, this is called Turiya, T-U-R-I-Y-A. Buddhist terms, they call it Samadhi. And so Turiya is the fourth state. Turiya means the fourth. So we go beyond thinking, feeling. So it's beyond physical form, mental form, emotional form. We go beyond deep sleep, uh, dream state sleep, and waking state where there's a subjective identity. That's the I. And when we transcend, nearly all my students have the ability to transcend in their first weekend doing their workshop with me. That is that what happens is they come out of their meditation and go, where did I go? What, what was that space? And they can't identify the space because it's non-localized. Normally we localize our experience, which is I am here. I'm in this room, I'm on this podcast. And in the transcendent experience, what happens is there's no locality because you are the omnipresence of being, the universality and eternality of absolute fundamental truth. And that's our reality at all times is just that we're so caught up in our thinking feeling body that we are distracted and this is why we call it kali yuga the age of ignorance we're distracted looking externally for our identity and when we transcend in meditation um it's it's a powerful beautiful expansive experience that is where we find our true sanctuary and true invincibility so this brings me to my next question. After I interviewed Dr. Dan Siegel, when we first launched this podcast, it was right in the beginning. And he started to talk about that with his wheel of awareness meditation. And he described it in a way of a diagram. And I'm going to put the diagram in the show notes, but he called it the 3P diagram of state of mind where there's our awareness on our plane. And I also linked it to what Bob Proctor would talk about in the seminar industry, that everything just is around us, um, that we can tap into everything. Uh, that's just how I thought it was. Am I correct that we can go into this 
plane of possibility where all answers exist. Is that what that is? Yeah, it's a very subtle field of intelligence or wisdom or pure potentiality. So all form and phenomenon is manifest from that infinite field of possibility. So this Sharpie pen uh, is now a physical form. However, before it became a physical form, there was a transitional point where it was only possibility so that if it's physical, therefore it always had the potential to be physical because it's been proven to be physical. In between it being just a possibility in the field of infinite possibilities for eons, for eternality, there was an intention and a desire, which is the first birthing point of it becoming manifest. It's the very initial point of extraction from formlessness and unboundedness into the first stage of it being a form, which is the idea. Mm, someone at some point before this became a physical form, at some point, someone had an idea, whether it was on a bus or when they're waking up in the morning or whether they're in the shower or whether they're sitting at their notepad in their engineer's room for whatever company it is that they're working for, said, I think there's a new market that I can bring to market. And it's going to have a gray sort of base and a black top. And it's going to have this capacity to write in a thick black sort of I don't know if you guys get Sharpies. You have Sharpie there? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, right. Every day. Okay. Um, I wasn't sure if it was just an Australian thing. So some point there was this intention and a desire, a creative impulse. And this is happening all day, every day, since day dot. I'm going to build a fire. I'm going to draw a bison on a wall in a cave. I'm going to make a beaded necklace. I'm going to design a new app that's going to bring something to the world so everything that's not manifest yet is in the field of pure possibility right now and that's which, what we get to play with which is why we've got to when we have an idea pluck it with a pencil write it down and move it, or yeah. else it's lost and someone else creates it right yeah it's floating in the ether it's just there at time it's quite often films will come out um it's really interesting two films came out recently both had the same name and both both were about the same topic they were both called superhuman and they're both about superhuman capabilities. I was initially involved in, in the early stages of one of those films um, in producing it. And it was incredible because they came out literally at the same time. And both of them were just like, you were doing that. Yeah, we were doing that. Um, and it was just because it was, it was in the collective. Mm -hmm. Happened so many times. Oh, this is so much fun. I love this. I could talk to you all night, but morning <laughs> for you. But so this just brings me to the fact that I just loved hearing that you were inspired by the movie The Secret to produce your own movie on meditation. And at the time that The Secret came out, I had been writing my first book, The Secret for Teens. It was like in a, a document that I got motivated to publish very quickly right after Rhonda Byrne did The Secret. I thought I got to do Secret for Teens before they came out with The Secret to Teen Power because I'd already done Secret for Teens. How do you see this movie changing the world, helping people to find more happiness and joy? And what did you actually, what, how did The Secret motivate you to do this movie? Well, firstly, when I saw The Secret, I was very drawn to it and very excited by it because it was the very early stages of using film to convey content that uplifts and inspires us film basically up until then had really been about um entertainment there were very few films were produced in those days this was going back gosh only like 10 years ago for 
content to inform us. You know, of course, we had documentaries that had been coming out for a long time, but not in the magnitude that The Secret had done that. And it started the early stages of a boom in conscious media, conscious film. But what they did was that they managed to penetrate the world. They became omnipresent. You can go to pretty much any country in the world now and say, have you heard of The Secret film or book? And pretty much everyone will say, well, yeah, of course. And so they managed to penetrate the world with a very esoteric subject that what you feel and think you attract. It's like, what? How did they do that? And so that really inspired me to, to follow in their footsteps with meditation. Admittedly, back then, meditation wasn't a global phenomenon. It wasn't like a mainstream thing. And we took a long time to get our film out. But the film was initially to inspire people to meditate daily. But it kind of morphed over time. And I think quite rightfully so, it just seemed the universe did this, was that it morphed into more about crisis and how crisis plays an integral role in, in the process of evolution. Crisis is critical for the process of evolution. Only if evolution has been resistant, resisted, if evolution's being resisted, if someone or some entity, some group of people aren't in flow with the process of evolution, then, then crisis has to be come along to, to create a, um, a method to inspire people to change whether it's individually, whether it's a company, whether it's a relationship, whether it's a civilization, that pain and suffering, crisis, turmoil, discomfort, disease is the impetus for growth and change. Without that, we just keep doing the same thing over and over again, and we'll just stay in the recurring static known, which defies the laws of evolution, which things must evolve and grow. And so we're looking at crisis, and, and there's a, a word in Sanskrit called Rashi, and we cover this in the book a lot more than the film, we talk about a Rashi, which is a, a, a Vedic uh, perspective on the, the extremity of crisis. It will get more and more extreme to a point of unconditional, uh, an unconditional situation where change must occur. It's not like change should occur at a Rashi point, which is a fork in the road, change must occur. And that's either breakdown or breakthrough. You're only left with those two options. With, with crisis, you can keep having crises but once you get to a rashi, it's like, okay, this is either the end here or you break through into a whole nother level. So a relationship will get to a rashi, will either go into divorce or they'll up level to the next thing. A company will go into bankruptcy or they'll up level to the next thing. A civilization will go into self-termination and become extinct or they'll up level to the next thing. And we're getting, I think we're very close to being at our junction point for a global rashi. So for people who watch the movie, are, are there case studies of people that, you know, learned incredible things and broke through and then now we're inspired to do the same thing? Is that the whole idea? Yeah, we, we searched the world. We searched 300 different stories that had all had their own crisis, that their own personal meltdown or their own personal challenge that I guess would be categorized as a Rashi. And then they found meditation through whatever means, because it kind of follows a bit of my journey. Um, I just didn't want to put my story in there. And so it's about people going through a crisis from all walks of life. And we have, you know, every, almost every sort of story or background you could possibly find in the film. And then they move through that after finding meditation to a higher place of consciousness and a more elevated state in their life. And then we talk about how, Meditation helps us play, it helps us move through these difficult times and get to um, 
a more evolved and elevated state. I've only ever gotten to the bottom of problems by identifying the root. Like, why are you reacting a certain way? Why are you thinking or feeling this way and you get to the root? Can you do that same type of process through meditation? Is there a way to solve big, huge problems and get to the root and now they're fixed through meditation? Well, firstly, what happens when you meditate is you find that the, the problem doesn't exist. Um, and then what happens is you, in that space of space of samadhi, it's, and that allows you to disentangle from the energetic charge that you're messed, you know, you're caught up in, the emotional frequencies that are playing out and wreaking havoc across your body. So it disentangles you from the story, allows you to stay in a piece of uh, state of peace and calm. And it opens up your mind to the infinite field of creative potential. So a number of things happen when we meditate is firstly, we calm our vessel down. So we're no longer emotionally charged and in that state that's deteriorating our health and wellness. Um, it quiets the mind down and gives us access to that field of infinite possibility and creative potential. But it also frees us from the code that's in our mind because we have patterns of thought. We have neurological patterns, which results in physiological patterns of behavior. And this was what I was doing. I was stuck in these habitual patterns of behavior that were some of them were just coded into me. Some of them were from genetics. But when I started meditating, what happened was it freed me of the, the, the code. It, it's like unscrambled the code. It was my operating system and allowed me to start operating from a place of wisdom place of intuition and i'm i was a lot freer and then i had greater capacity to see what's ahead to see the solutions to see how to find a new way forward we don't need to this is the, the challenges that we have in the world is we're spending a lot of time <laughs> i know it's very big in america and this is not to discredit the whole psychological psychology and psychotherapy and psychiatry system However, when we're trying to solve a problem with the same level of thinking that created the problem in the first place, it's very, very difficult because we're going to be working with an operating system that is still coded to think and behave in that particular way. So we don't necessarily need to go back and start to revisit all of those experiences and start to recode again and again and again with the same thing but to actually transcend the experience and it might sound a bit like spiritual bypassing but there's there's some relevance in the process of transcending transcend the experience experience what is present moment awareness now where we prevail in our innate nature which is lightness and love and that just automatically frees us from that previous experience and then allows us a clean slate to make decisions and choices about what we're going to do next because that's what's really important is what we're going to do next what we did in the past is we can learn from that definitely, but we don't want to keep reliving that experience energetically. And could you compare this to changing different brain states? Like I just interviewed someone that has uh, neurofeedback technology that takes you um, from the beta state where all the stress is to the alpha state. We're already, we're always changing our brain state right now. you the listeners, everyone that's listening to this, their brain state's changing right now. Mm -hmm to where it was 45 minutes ago is a different brain state because what we're talking about has a different frequency. 
Um, and then if you turn on Netflix and you start watching a horror film, your brain state will change again. And then if you turn on the radio and start listening to some I'm talking about, I don't know, politics, your brain state's going to change then. So our brain state's changing all the time. It's just a matter of how selective and how mindful and how proactive are you about what brain state you're choosing to be in. Mm. But yeah, meditation will definitely change your brain state as well. Got it. And put you in the problem solving brain state. Just a deeper, deeper, calmer brain state. So it allows you a greater thinking capacity. Got it. This is really good. This is good. So how can someone watch your movie? No, just go to entertheportal.com. Entertheportal.com. Okay. And then from there, basically, it'll just come up right on the home screen. It'll just say, watch the film now. Uh, And so they can watch the film or read the book. So the book uh, up in the top toolbar, the book has uh, many bonuses. They can get up to $2,500 worth of bonuses if they buy the book, which is really exciting. One of them is working with me as a coach. Um, so that's the book is like an expansive experience beyond the film. The film is 90 minutes where we take six powerful stories plus three futurists that look at humanity and look at where humanity's going, um, where humanity's been. Um, we dive deeper into that in the book because we can get a lot more content in the book. Got it. And if people go to your website, tomcronin.com, they can find all your services. You do speaking and coaching. There's lots of places for people to put in if they want to work closely with you, put a, your information in and you'll contact them. Is that the best place? Absolutely. Yeah. They can just uh, reach out to me through the website and find anything that feels charming or compelling. If not, then that's all good as well. Well, this has been so much fun for me personally to take a deeper dive into meditation and get your point of view from the King of Calm. Is there anything important that you think I've missed that we haven't touched on about your work? I think just for the audience, it's really about, you know, where everyone's at today. And um, it's going to get pretty wild. It's but what we're seeing is a, a significant phase shift on the planet a much needed phase shift out of a very old status quo, a very old way of doing things, an old way of the way systems are set up and the way we live within those systems. And that's going to change quite rapidly. It's not possible for us to expand our minds like we're on podcasts and Zoom calls and people are changing their state of mind very quickly. And therefore, what will happen as a result of that, the systems that they want to work within and live within will need to upgrade in accordance to that level of frequency. And so we're going to see some turbulence as we start to have expectations about what those systems could and should be like that are more congruent with our new state of consciousness. And what we have are very static systems. We need to have evolving systems, but we don't have evolving systems. That's the education system, the banking system, the political system, the sporting system, the relationship system. And so I just want to give the audience some hope and some inspiration that as things become quite turbulent, keep in the macro perspective that that has to happen for a new design, for a new expansive, progressive way forward for our species. The options are self-termination. The options are a very sick and unhealthy society. It's not very good to sustain an old status quo that's 200 years old. We must evolve this current status quo, the systems and the mindsets of the people that build the systems and live within the systems. So just as we go through these turbulent times ahead, always remember these words that when you're renovating a house or you want to build a new house, 
there's some deconstruction that takes place and it gets a bit messy. And as things start to crumble and fall, as you're knocking down walls and pulling out kitchens, it gets a little bit turbulent, a little bit messy, a little bit dusty, a little bit uncomfortable. But always, you're okay to go through that process because you're very aware of what's going to come through, which is a new design, a new kitchen, a new carpets and nice, beautiful new building. And that's what lies ahead for us. But there will be some dismantling and that's going to be a little bit uncomfortable. So it's okay, but um, keep, keep ourselves connected into our heart space, into our loving center and uh, be kind and compassionate and uh, be gentle and uh, try to stay off too much social media. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. And go check out TomCronin.com. See what you've got there and watch your, have a look at the book and the movie. And I want to thank you so much for speaking with me today. It's been extremely enlightening for me. Thank you so much, Tom. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for inviting me along today. Absolutely. If you're enjoying the Neuroscience Meets Social and Emotional Learning podcast, please don't forget to subscribe so you'll stay up to date with our new episode. While you're there, please feel free to give us a review or a five-star rating as it helps others find us. For more information on our programs, books, and tools for schools and the workplace, visit us at www.achieveit360.com. 